All right, our reading is from 1 Thessalonians. You can find this in your copy of God's Word, or if you need to use the Bibles in the rows, uh, it's page 986, uh, should be the start of the book. Uh, I'm not sure if that exactly starts chapter 2, um, but it's real close. Um, so we're going to be reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 this morning. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle, gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory." Sends the reading of God's word, and may God bless the reading and preaching of his word today. Let's pray. Father, be at work in our hearts. Fill me with your spirit. Guide and direct us. Work for your glory today in each of our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So why is it that we are often attracted to the con man, the hustler, and the huckster? We are. Those who can amaze us with smooth talk or fancy shows tend to grab our attention. We love books like Huckleberry Finn, The Great Gatsby, and some of you will remember an older movie with Robert Redford and Paul Newman, The Sting. And I'm sure many of you could come up with some other examples. We're drawn to these type of people. P.T. Barnum was, was great at it. You've all probably seen The Greatest Showman. In many ways, he helped bring about the idea of mass entertainment. He would gleefully fake events in order to get publicity and draw a crowd and, of course, generate a little bit of cash flow for him. People like this enjoy the acclamation, the fame, the, the roar of the crowd, the money, they like to be the center of attention. And it's not that difficult to understand when you think about it. People love a little bit of praise and encouragement. But at the same time, it's not necessarily what is to characterize a believer. And certainly it's not what is to characterize one who is proclaiming the gospel. Paul very likely was accused of being a con man himself. But he made it very clear, nope, that's not true. 
That's not who he was. He wasn't motivated by any of that. He was motivated by a desire to live a life pleasing to God. And as we begin chapter 2, he makes a convincing defense of his ministry and how he went about it. And he reminded the Thessalonians in the process that they themselves actually knew very well what was true. So in our text this morning, we have Paul's defense. And in it, we will see the the character and and wisdom of his ministry as as we look at at two things, the, the, the means and the manner of proclamation, the means and the manner of proclamation, why and how he proclaimed the gospel as he did. And I hope that what we see is that the gospel transformed him he had come to, to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ called him through the gospel and enabled him to live in a way that displayed the character of Christ. So look at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, as, as usual, if we see the word for, we need to see why it's there. What, is, what does this connect us back to? Obviously, with the previous chapter, it, does, it can't go back any further than that. So it's the previous chapter, but I would think in particular verses 4 and 5, where Paul addressed how he and his companions had brought the gospel to the Thessalonians and, and what type of people they had proved to be. This, therefore, is that explanation, the basis for, for why he was able to say what he said. Now, his visit, he says, was not in vain. Now, when you hear that, you think, there's a couple different ways you could take that word. There's a couple ideas that you could have that this could communicate. It can mean that he didn't come empty-handed, which would be saying that he didn't come in that manner. Rather, he came as a person of integrity. He came with integrity. It could also, though, refer to results of his coming. And therefore mean that his visit did not lack results. It actually produced them. And this is one of, I think, the many times where I see a word conveying both of these ideas. The context around this includes references both to the nature of, of, of Paul's coming, his own character and manner, but it also deals with the results. It also deals with the fact that people came to know Christ. So, so Paul was not deceptive or worthless in the way he came, and people actually came to believe the gospel through his proclamation. So Paul then goes on to write about what he encountered while ministering, even prior to being in Thessalonica. Look at verses 2 through 4. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, verse 2 refers to um, what happened in Philippi prior to their arrival in Thessalonica. So this is recorded in Acts 16. We looked at a little bit of it in the introduction, kind of talked about that and looked at Acts 17 in particular. And, and, but in Acts 16, you read of his, his entrance, his coming to Philippi and reasoning in the synagogues and, and the conversion of Lydia. And, and then let, let's pick up in verse 16 of Acts 16. It's written, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and 
brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Now just picture this little girl walking behind you, just screaming that all day long. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, not surprisingly, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. Really what he means is they're taking away my money. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us, Romans, to to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. That's nice that they finally decide to keep them safely after beating them with rods and ripping their clothes off. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, needless to say, this was the shameful treatment and affliction he was talking about. And, and then, while in prison, you know, after all that, while in prison, again, they sang hymns. An earthquake comes, and their shackles fly off. Nobody leaves. Philippian jailers converted. And eventually, the magistrates and the leaders of the city come to Paul and Silas and say, no, no you may go. And Paul and Silas are like, well, actually, you need to apologize first because of how you treated us. And then finally, they politely asked them to leave, and they left the city. And so think about, that's the prior experience to Thessalonica. They had that kind of treatment for what, what happened there, and, and, and honestly, for their whole proclamation of Jesus, of, of a different Lord, a, a different king, the only true one, and they received that treatment, yet they continued to be bold in declaring the gospel, even though they perpetually experienced much conflict. The text says, that they had boldness in our God. What a beautiful phrase. What a beautiful acknowledgement here. Paul is is not saying that they could do this because of their naturally strong constitution. He and and Silas were just one of those those guys that would just fight through anything. No, they, they had boldness in God. They were able to speak boldly to proclaim a message to which some reacted quite violently because of their strength in God, because of how God empowered them and strengthened them through union with Christ. And I think verses 3 to 4 enhance this idea a bit more. It answers, I I think, the heart motivation of why they could be bold, the, the means by which they could continue on, even in much affliction. And if I were asked to write a, a summary, kind of my own, um, my own translation of this, it would be something like this. It's maybe more like the Amplified Bible, I guess. This is what I would say. We did this because we weren't preaching something false. We weren't hucksters and con men. We weren't selling something to you for our gain. Rather, we were entrusted with the gospel. We came to know the Lord intimately, and we cannot help but speak. We don't do it to please men. That's not the point of the message. We seek to please God, even though this message will bring life and hope and joy and peace to men and women who hear it and respond with faith. See, I think Paul made it clear 
that their appeal, their exhortation didn't come. It, it didn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. There was nothing false in what they said. Nothing. There was certainly nothing morally corrupt or vile. That's actually what the gospel answers in our lives. It's not what it brings. It's what it deals with. And there was no falsehood. Paul and his companions didn't speak to deceive or try and trick someone or pull a fast one. They spoke with bold sincerity and conviction. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, the first two verses, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We're not going to, it doesn't matter if, it's, if it might grow something. We're not going to do it. We're not going to tamper with the way God's word calls us to minister. And now why? Because they knew the power of the gospel. They, they had been given the gospel themselves. They had been entrusted with it. They were approved by God to have this ministry. And the, 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 the words approved and test are, are actually of the same root. God was the one to whom Paul and his companions were accountable he is the one to whom we are all accountable. And on the one hand, that can be a daunting thought. The God of the universe is the one who holds us all accountable. It's a bit scary. However, as John Stott wrote, on the other hand, it is marvelously liberating. Since God is a more knowledgeable, impartial, and merciful judge than any human being or ecclesiastical court or committee. To be accountable to him is to be delivered from the tyranny of human criticism. How wonderful would it be to be liberated from fickle human criticism? How many of us are paralyzed sometimes by fickle human criticism? And that might tell us we're trying to please men rather than God. You see, God is the one who searches our heart, not a committee. You could look at Psalm 7, 9, Jeremiah eleven twenty, Romans 8, 27, Revelation 2, 23. So, so I think as we think about God being the one who searches our hearts, with this, I, I think there's an implicit call for us in humility, to go before the Lord and ask Him to search our hearts, to invite that. We have precedence in Psalm 139, don't we? The end of that beautiful psalm, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What a beautiful prayer. Search me and know me. Try me. Know, know my thoughts. Know, know my anxious thoughts and lead me in the way that's everlasting. Keeping our hearts in the way of God, keeping our hearts set after Him is vital. I've said it so many times, Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. If you've been reading along in the, the Bible reading plan, you see someone whose heart was hard over 
and over and over again. And even in the midst of seeing God work, his heart hardened more and more. Lord, keeping our hearts soft before the Lord is so important. God will test them. And we, we are to be a people who long to be vindicated, to be approved now in how our hearts are before Him, and of course in the end. You see, Paul's main motivation was to please God. It was to please the God who saved him, who called him by the gospel to preach the gospel, not to please men. Galatians 1.10, he wrote, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You almost hear him saying, those don't work together. In his prayer for the Colossian church, I prayed it earlier in the pastoral prayer, he prayed that, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul's heart was to please God and to see believers do the same thing. To see believers live lives that sought to please their king. Some of you might be thinking, well, I think I remember Paul talking about pleasing men somewhere. Well, he did. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to 33. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. I think if you read that context, you know there's no contradiction. Paul's motivation here is clear. It's not for himself in pleasing, but for God and for the good of those to whom he sought to please so that they may be saved, so that they could know the God of the universe, that they could know salvation, that they could know the freedom that is found only in Christ. In that sense, we should please men. But our ultimate motive must be loyalty to God and a desire to please Him. The means by which Paul was able to proclaim the gospel, was this. I think he was captured by its truth. The Lord changed him on that Damascus road, and it changed how he lived. The grace of God in Christ Jesus changed how he viewed all of life. So then, how did he go about proclaiming the gospel? This was the the, the means behind it. What, What was his manner in doing so? So we're going to take the remaining verses in, in two sections. The first is uh, verses 5 through 8. And in those, I've lumped these together kind of under a heading of evangelical love. Evangelical love. So look at verses 5 through 8. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. It's here that we see his approach. And it's an approach that never involved words of flattery. 
And here, that, that idea of, of flattery would be to, to gain um, um, someone's attention or to gratify someone's vanity. They didn't say things just to make people feel better about themselves, giving itching ears what they want to hear. Instead, they, they went graciously with the truth. They preached the truth. They didn't preach to certain people, but they preached the truth to all. But they also did not come with a pretext for greed. It's all too easy to see the opposite of this today, isn't it? When a televangelist says he needs a Gulfstream 5 because his Gulfstream 4 isn't good enough anymore. If you don't know what a Gulfstream is, it's a very nice private jet. Millions and millions of dollars. There's lavish lifestyles of televangelists all over the place. And because of greedy charlatans like that, it seems that nearly all ministers are suspect when it comes to this issue. But Paul had no pretext. There was no cloak concealing a desire simply to get his hands on the money. He didn't come with that. That was not what Paul was about. Further, he wrote, nor did we seek glory from people. The only glory that Paul worked for was God's. This was a passion that consumed his life. If, if you look at a later um, letter from Paul, 2 Timothy, probably one of his last letters, towards the end of his life, he wrote I, in, in chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That tells you his heart, doesn't it? His heart is he so has loved God's coming and he so looks forward to God coming again because he knows what the Lord has done for his own life. And so that's the race he's had is to please his master, not to please men, not to seek their glory. This was his aspiration. It was following after his own Lord's example. In Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. In verse 9 and 10, we see, he said, and, and, and that Satan said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus knew where his priorities were. He, he wouldn't circumvent the Father's ways for his own glory. And by the grace of God, Paul wouldn't either. Yet in all these things, Paul writes that as apostles of Christ, they could have rightly sought finances for the ministry. They could have rightly asked for that and, and the honor that would be due to him as a minister of Christ Jesus. But that wasn't his heart motivation. It's not what he demanded. He didn't say, I need a green room and, and you know, please be sure to take out all the green M&Ms because I don't like those. I, I want everything exactly like I want it and, and, and be demanding in the process. He didn't do any of that. He was seeking to live a life pleasing to God. So folks, what's your goal and motivation in life? Is it glory from others, or is it the glory and approbation of God? 
Is it glory from others or the glory and the approbation of God? And I will say this, I'm positive it's a mixed bag. Because <laughs> it's, it's difficult. We're sinful. We know that. It's a mixed bag. But what direction are we heading? Now, if we continue to look at this text, you can tell this is Paul still giving a defense, right? He's not being defensive, but he is giving a defense. As he states multiple times in this passage, as you know, you know, you know everything I'm saying. You were there. You know how we came. He's reminding the Thessalonians that they know what they know to be true and, and also encouraging them, please don't fall prey to the lies, to the accusations against our ministry, against the gospel. And don't let those things seep into your hearts and, and cause you to doubt or even deny the truth of the gospel. You know. You know what's true. Don't let them try and discredit the messenger so you can throw off this message because at times it's hard. It doesn't necessarily give you the best standing in Thessalonica or in Butler County. So, folks, this is what Paul wasn't, okay? He didn't come with flattery. He didn't come with a pretext for greed, seeking glory. Instead, he and his companions were gentle. Gentle. They were tender in how they cared for the Thessalonians. And he uses a, a, a picture for us, like a nursing mother with her child. If you've ever had the privilege of seeing that, you know the depth and care and love that's displayed. It's unmistakable. The mother giving of herself to care for the child, it's a beautiful picture of the love and care of Paul and his companions for the Thessalonians. They had such a great, uh, deep affection for them. Even in a short period of time, they grew that love for them. Remember, they were there three, maybe four weeks, and they grew this deep affection. A mother gains that even before the child takes a breath of air on its own. But when that child is born, there's no stopping that love, and it's immediate. And this was all displayed in the fact that they weren't there simply to share the gospel with them. They shared their lives. They shared their lives. They weren't a disconnected, dispassionate band of evangelists, you know, out, out in the countryside who'd come in and, and they'd get their money for the day and then they'd go back out. No, they were part of their lives. They loved them deeply, deeply engaged in the work that God called them to and in the people they were called to minister to. So I remember many years, being told, many years ago being told this in regard to ministry. People won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And it's true. It's true. Do you deeply love those you're ministering to? Our affection for others because of God's love for us will make a difference. And it's needed. Well, then we move to verses 9 through 12. And here I categorize this as evangelical diligence. Evangelical diligence. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses 
And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers, for you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. Paul now reminds his readers of of their labor and toil, of of Paul and his companions' labor and toil, their work. The four here in verse 9 gives support for the contention of verse 8, that Paul lovingly gave his very life for the Thessalonians. And he doesn't tell us what type of labor and hardship he undertook and endured, but he was, he was in a sense, bivocational with them. And we know, he, but historically, he was a tent maker, which meant he worked with leather, all kinds of leather goods. That's probably what he did to support himself and the ministry. He worked with his hands, and he did this not to be a burden to them. We know that Paul taught, though, that the responsibility to support and sustain its leaders, its, its pastors, falls on the church. But Paul didn't want to place that burden on the Thessalonians at this point. Now, he did receive gifts from Philippi, so he clearly wasn't against that support. But for them, for the Thessalonians, he would not add this weight to them. And maybe some of that, we, we don't know, maybe there was one of the charges against him what was, was a slanderous thing that, that he was just there for the money. And so because of that, he's like, you know what? I'm going to make sure that there's this completely and utterly baseless. There's no way any normal, rational human being could make that charge or believe it. I won't accept a thing from you. I'll work night and day for the gospel. He didn't want to be any kind of stumbling block. And again, he reminds them, guys, you're witnesses of this. And you know what? So is God. Paul labored without hiding, without masking what he and his companions did. It was all out in the open before God. And further, in his manner in which they conducted themselves, he said that they were holy and righteous and blameless. They lived holy lives. They'd been set apart by God for this work, and that is what they pursued. They were righteous. They sought to conform their lives to the law and character of God, to be transformed into Christ's likeness, and they were blameless. They were beyond reproach. Paul didn't fear any accusation in his actions and what he said because he knew, he, he knew they would be baseless. If Paul would have had an internet search history, he would have been fine with everyone seeing it. If Paul would have had a bank account, he would have had no issues with somebody knowing where his finances went. He would have shared it openly. He would have had nothing to fear. What he did, he did with integrity. He did it with integrity. Holy, righteous, and blameless. And then Paul moves to the imagery of a father. No, not only were they gentle like a nursing mother, but they exhorted and encouraged and charged like a father. They instructed them to walk, to, to live in a manner worthy of God, worthy of the name of Christ. Ephesians 4, he's charged very similarly. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He instructed the Thessalonians to live their lives in a way that's pleasing to God. And he's going to come back to that in chapter 4. So we're going, to, we're going to delve into that aspect more later. 
But this is what he's doing. He, he, they gently and tenderly push the believers, encouraging them, comforting them in the gospel. Folks, certainly, you know, in that time, as, as, as Paul sought to know and, and was deeply affectionate of them, he, he ran into believers there. Maybe, maybe, guys, people that came to Christ early in the, in the first week there. And by week two and a half, they're faint-hearted. It's like, they need encouragement. They need the comfort of the gospel again and again. And maybe he had some that they converted the first week, and by week three, they're like, eh, they're sliding off. They might need a little bit of an exhortation. But he knew them, and he knew what they needed. Paul and his companions sought to bring that to shepherd and love the people well. You know, people need different things at different times. You need people in your lives who know that, who know you, and who know what you need. And then he pointed them to their call. God had called them into his own kingdom and glory. Into his own kingdom and glory. There's a paradigm here. It's subtle in some ways. But what doesn't he say? He doesn't write that God called you to your own kingdom and glory. If more of us could get that through our heads, it would be really good. We're called to God's own kingdom and glory, not to grow our own individual ones, but to receive His kingdom. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To receive His kingdom and to work for His glory. See, God is the King. He is the sovereign, and it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. Folks, Paul lays out clearly in this text his motive his means, the, the, the means, the, the manner for ministry for all of life. He was focused on one main thing, pleasing God, the glory of God as a humble and grateful child and servant. I was actually reminded this week of, of the book of James, section in there, that, and, and the call that James gives to live a life of godly wisdom. Because this is, we don't just see the character of, of Paul here, we see the wisdom of Paul. James 3, 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Folks, we see that sadly too much in the church. Selfish ambition, and we see disorder and every vile practice. These things ought not to be. And then James writes, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, 
full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And then he writes, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make for peace. This is our call, to live lives of godly wisdom, seeking to please God in all that we do, to, to live with a character that seeks God's glory and with the wisdom from God to continue to seek His glory, especially in our proclamation of the gospel. You know, you think about it, sure, Paul may well have engaged in more pragmatic and showy ways of expanding the church, but he only engaged in what was pleasing to God. In the ways and means that God gave, he preached faithfully and with integrity, and we live the lasting legacy of one who did so. He was willing to suffer whatever affliction came his way, but he also knew that God would bring forth that harvest of righteousness by those who sow in righteousness and in peace. So let's be a people who live a life pleasing to God, proclaiming the gospel in a pleasing way, asking the Lord to search our hearts and to guide and direct us, to take our lives and to conform them to His will in everything. Let's pray. Father, it is wonderful that You've set forth in in your word and example. Lord, we know we cannot do it without the power of the Spirit, without you at work in our hearts. So we pray that you would be at work today and henceforth. Lord, for your glory, for our good and joy, and the good and the joy of those around us, as we seek to proclaim the gospel in wisdom and in character. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.